Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I welcome you to grace, welcome you to worship. So good to have you together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as people on this journey. Hey, let me ask you a question. Is there a gap in your life between what you profess and what you practice? What I mean is, when you come to worship God on a Sunday, perhaps, and sing songs and pray to him, and maybe even nod your head at some of the things that the preacher says in agreement, does your life really back that up in the way you live Monday through Saturday? That's what I'm asking, really. Or when you read Scripture, and you gladly profess, the Bible is my authority. The Bible is the book that I value to guide me in life. Is that really true? Or are we really giving lip service to something that we're not giving life service to? Now, trust me today, every Christ follower has a gap between their profession and their practice. All God's children have gaps. I have gaps. You have gaps. All God's kids have gaps. Trust me on that. And on this earth, we are never fully consistent. Where we live out in every circumstance with complete consistency what we profess to believe. But... The process of sanctification, that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been born again by his spirit, indwelled by him, justified by grace through faith, if you're on that journey today, listen, the process of sanctification is all about closing the gap. That's why I drew these arrows here. It's all about our practice actually getting closer to our profession. Now, typically, when someone starts the Christian journey, there's this huge gap between what they've now become in Christ and all he's declared them to be objectively. There's a huge gap between that and where our life actually is. I mean, typically, our life looks nothing like Christ really wants it to look or like it will eventually look as we follow him. But that process of sanctification is all about closing that gap between what we profess to believe and what we actually practice. And if you wonder, what is a mature Christian? We're in a series right now called Useful and Pleasing to God. Well, what is that Christian who is ultimately just incredibly pleasing to God? Day in and day out in the way we live our lives. Well, it's that person. It's that person who has closed that gap by God's grace, cooperating with God's grace, where the gap has been closed. And they consistently live out what they profess to believe. That's what you would call a healthy, mature disciple of Jesus. Okay? And the Apostle Paul said that's his goal to be pleasing to God, and it really ought to be our goal as well. But can I tell you something? I believe the key to the gap getting closed is humble teachability. 
the key to this happening, to what God wants to happen in our lives, because he doesn't want us to stay the way we are. Trust me, he wants us to be changing, to be transformed by his grace and power. But the key to that is humble teachability. So the question today we explore is, are we teachable people? And I ask that because my observation for many, many years now is that the gap between profession and practice is still pretty wide, even for people who followed Jesus for a lot of years. It's not narrowing much because we are no longer teachable. Over time, this pride develops, and we kind of think, well, I'm good enough. I mean, after all, I don't get to work, get to heaven by my good deeds anyway, and Praise God. And so it doesn't really matter that I've still got a crotchety attitude. That's okay. It doesn't matter that I'm mean-spirited. You know, I hope my family lives with it. It doesn't matter that I've still got all these besetting sins that just drag me down day after day, and I don't really care much about them. Look, I'm going to heaven. And so we become hardened in our heart, and we're no longer teachable. Well, if any of us find ourselves there today, Micah, the prophet in the Old Testament, really has a word for us. Micah is one of my favorite of the minor prophets. He grew up in Judah, the southern kingdom, but he prophesied to both the southern, his own country, and the northern kingdom. He prophesied to the people of God. He looked around at the general condition in Israel and Judah, and he saw three things that really concerned him. He saw idolatry, immorality, and injustice. And the one that really, they're all connected, but the one that really bothered him, I suppose, the most was the injustice he saw. God's people came to worship together, and they worshiped a God of justice, but when it came to practicing justice in their daily lives, the gap was still pretty wide. And so he speaks out about that. I've got my Bible open to Micah chapter 6, and I'm looking now at the latter part of verse 2. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Now, what's the charge he's talking about? Now, this gets really interesting. Verse three, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you also Aaron and Miriam. So God is saying, let me remind you of my gracious intervention in redeeming you out of Egypt and leading you to the promised land. And in light of all I've done and all the blessings in your life, here's my question. Here's my question. God says, how can the gap between your profession and your practice still be so stinking wide? After all this time, after all I've done, and here's their basic reply. In fact, Micah sort of channels the general vibe of the people here. And upon hearing about this gap and God challenging them about the gap that exists in their lives, their reply back to God is rather sarcastic. I'm looking now, still chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? That's what people did in the religion of Baal. They sacrificed their own children. Would God be pleased with that? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, let me paraphrase what the people are saying. Oh, God, you want us to close the gap between our practice and our profession? Oh, we're not religious enough for you, huh? Oh, God, oh, okay. In your law, you prescribed that we were to bring these offerings. So we were to bring a ram. What if we brought a 1,000? Would that be good enough for you, God? And in your law, you told us that when we bring a fellowship offering, we were to have a splash of oil on that. What if we brought 10,000 rivers of oil? Would that, would that finally please you, God? Would you be okay with that? You see the sarcasm in their response. Do you want us to do more religious activities and rigmarole? Would that finally please you? It would be like a Christian saying to gay, okay, God, you've told us to confess our sins. Well, what if we confess for seven hours a day? Would that be enough? Huh, huh, huh? You told us to get baptized in water. Well, what if we got dunked 5,000 times? Would that finally please you? That's essentially what the people are saying. And God's answer is staggering. Absolutely not. I'm not looking for more religious hoops for you to jump through. I'm not looking for more religious liturgy. You're missing the point. Here's what I want. I want what you profess in your liturgy to show up in your lifestyle. That's what I'm asking for. And then Micah explains that in verse 8. He has showed you, O oh man, O oh woman, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Bottom line, I want what you profess to show up Monday through Saturday in your lifestyle. Now, if you go back and study the first five chapters of Micah, he has pointed out examples of how this gap exists, this injustice in particular exists in the culture. For instance, he talked about orphans and widows. Let me see if I can find it here in chapter 2. Orphans and widows, where he said, you drive the women, this is verse 9, of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. And God's saying, look, you act all holy and loving in the church service, but you seem to have no concern for the hurting people around you in the community. What's with that? There's, there's just too much gap in that. And then a second thing he points out is at the beginning of chapter two of Micah. He talks about how rich are exploiting the poor. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. God's saying, look, I'm, I'm just amazed at you. You grow right on lifting your hands in worship and singing your songs to me, and you're turning a blind eye to the exploitation and neglect of the poor around you. And then he points to a third injustice that he sees. Ooh, this one. 
This one hits home. He points to the religious and civic and political leaders who are exploiting naive people and practicing spiritual abuse. I'm looking now at chapter 3, verse 11. Her leaders judged for a bribe. In other words, judges are taking bribes to pervert justice. Her priests teach for a price. That means that when people say, look, if you tell us what we really want to hear, make it, we'll, we'll be more generous. If you just soften the message a little bit. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. Look, the prophets are making it like a spiritual crystal ball. Hey, look, we'll tell you what's coming in your future. Just pat our pockets real good. And they lean upon, yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. You see, these political and religious leaders are manipulating people in order to fund their luxurious lifestyles. And there's this huge disconnect, this gap between profession and practice that is incredibly wide. By the way, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, Micah is not the only prophet that pointed out these inconsistencies among God's people. God speaks through the prophet Amos, for instance. This is one of my favorites in Amos 5. And uh, he, he speaks to the people there, and he sa- it's really blunt. So brace yourself. He says, I hate, I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Now, again, I remind you, these are feasts and assemblies and offerings that God himself had commanded them to do. And he had instituted them through Moses. And that makes God's message through Amos all the stronger when he says, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, your guitars, your drums, your bass, your keys, name it. But what I'm looking for is let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. God's sake, for God's sake, please close the gap. I want to see the values of mercy and justice and humility lived out in your lives, not just sung about in worship songs, for goodness sake. That, my friends, is a very strong rebuke from Almighty God. And Just as this huge gap needed to be addressed in Micah's day, believe me, it needs to be addressed in ours. It needs to be corrected. But here's the problem. Do we have the humility to be teachable enough to close the gap? God's looking for faithful, available and teachable people. So let's turn the corner now and start applying this to our lives right here in the 21st century. Jesus taught us that loving God and loving your, loving your neighbor go together, right? That's the way it's meant to work. I like how blunt John is in the little letter called 1 John, for he says, for anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. It's like drop the mic. Boom. 
Boy, you, you just can't be any more in your face, any more cut to the chase, any more bottom line than that. That strong language, just drop the mic and John just walks away. That's it. Deal with it. <laughs> Our Lord Jesus Christ modeled this best, of course, because he lived a life that no one else has. He lived a life, get this, with no gap. He had no gap whatsoever. <coughs> so he modeled this for us. He preached good news to the poor, but he also fed the poor. He talked about the dangers of hell, but he also reached out to the needy person on the street. He proclaimed that he had come to heal the broken, and he actually healed people. He taught that the gospel would give sight to those who were spiritually blind, and he actually healed blinded eyes. He reminded his followers that God loves everybody, and then he modeled it by touching lepers and hanging out with the kinds of people that most religious folks would have nothing to do with. Here's the point. Jesus had no gap in his life. Jesus loved God the Father, and it just naturally overflowed to the people around him. There was absolutely no gap between what Jesus preached and what he practiced. He was completely consistent all the time, but we're not. Rex Keener is not. Trust me, you're not. And the question of the hour is, are we humble enough and teachable enough? This is what Micah is challenging us with. He said, look, what God's looking for is a humble walk with him where you're able to look, let someone point out your blind spots and close the gap in our lives. Now, I believe that one of the reasons, practical reasons, that the gap is still so wide for many of us, boy, I see this in myself so much, is that We've allowed, we've not allowed our love for God to translate into love for people. Let me just say that again, because I think it's real, 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 real important. We've not allowed our love for God. I'm talking to people right now who love God. I believe that. I believe you love God. But somehow, in my life and yours, it hasn't always translated well into love for people. I'm just going to speak for myself right now when I say this. God is a lot easier to love than most people I know. Huh? God is a lot easier to love than most people I know. In fact, you might even want to look at your neighbor right now and just wave at him and say, God's easier to love than you are. Just wave. Just wave. You might want to wink at him. Just smile at him and say, God's a lot easier to love than you are. It's true, you know. It's true. So the key to this is if we're going to start loving people more, we've got to somehow get the heart of God. You know, I looked this up to be pretty sure the first mention of the heart of God in the Bible, it reveals to us that God is in pain. Did you know that? It's very interesting. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. I've come to believe that unless our hearts are filled with pain, we've not begun to really know the heart of God. 
Knowing his truth is very different from knowing his heart. Knowing God's truth is very different from knowing and sharing his heart in our lives. And if we're gonna do what Micah says and walk humbly with God, we've gotta be teachable enough for this gap in our life to be closed. And believe me, that's gonna require us getting in touch with the pain in God's heart. You say, now, Pastor Rex, I got a question for you here. What will happen, brother, if we don't get in touch with the pain in God's heart? Here's what will happen. Here's what will happen. I'm, I'm as sure of this as if I'm standing here right now. We will be satisfied with singing the right things, preaching the right doctrines, going through the right religious exercises in worship, and all the while lulling ourselves into believing that all is right with the world. And I hope I don't need to remind you, all is not right with the world. The world is a very broken place with broken people, and God has called us to be his change agents. I'll just put it to you bluntly. When you got saved, if God didn't want you to be his change agent in this world, he would have just raptured you up to heaven right there and said, okay, you have no purpose here. You're out of here. You're here for a reason. You are his ambassador. You may be a good one, you may be a bad one, but you are an ambassador when you name the name of Christ. When you make this profession, Jesus is my Savior and Lord, whoa, you just became an ambassador. But if your practice is way down here, not a real good ambassador. That's just true for all of us. Again, I love how blunt John is in the little letter called 1 John. He says, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not obey his commands is a liar. And the truth, it's just mic drop time again, and the truth is not in it. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And then get this line. This is how we know we are in him. How do we know that we're really saved? How do we know that we really are in Christ? How do we know that all these things God has said about us being forgiven and born again and redeemed and no more condemnation and more than victorious and more than, how do we know that all that's true? Here's how John says it. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. I don't know about you, but I think the bar is pretty high. Jesus had no gap. Wait a minute, God, that's, that's too huge. That's too hard. No, God says, I'll help you. I just want the gap to be starting to close a little bit. That's what I'm calling for. You need to start looking a little more like Jesus. There's no gap with him between what he's professed and what he practiced. He truly loved God the Father, and it naturally flowed out to the people around him. So let me ask you, what are you saved for? According to Scripture, 
Ephesians 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're not saved by our good works. That's the whole point of Ephesians 2, but we are saved for good works. Let me ask you again, what are you saved for? According to that, you're saved for good works. But here's what I've observed, and I've been in the church a long time, folks, longer than many of you have been born. It seems to me that many of us are so desperately wanting to prove that we're not saved by good works that we don't actually do any. Oh, we wouldn't want anybody to get the wrong idea that we're saved by good works, so we just don't do anything. Because we wouldn't want anybody to get the wrong idea that we're earning anything here. And that was the scandal of the people in Micah's day. And so they come to God and they say, God, gee, what more do you want from us? More church services? More times of the church? More religious things? More religious hoops? God says, not at all. I want your life service to match up to your lift service. And if you if you really want to know what I'm looking for, I'm looking for your love for me to kind of translate into a genuine love for other people. So there, there's the question of the day, I guess, right? It is, it's what we profess here. We come together and sing, and I love that we do that. Let, let's keep on doing it. Let's not stop meeting together. <laughs> let's, let's keep on proclaiming who he is. Let's proclaim his character. Let's keep singing worship to him with robust and sincere hearts. But the question is, how is that getting translated Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? How is that getting translated to the people in our neighborhoods, our streets, our towns, our schools, with your coworker, where they could use a compassionate ear to listen, when they could use some mercy, when a person in your society perhaps is being oppressed. See, here's the deal. The litmus test of true Christianity is love. Jesus made that clear. Not just that you love family and friends and fellow believers. Oh, that's easy, my goodness. It's easy to love people who believe like you, maybe look a little bit like you, sound like you, have the same values as you, like you, easy. That's a, that's a cinch. But Jesus took it even further. He said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Yikes. I don't like Jesus sometimes. Can I just be... I don't like Jesus sometimes. I don't like some of the things he said, but that's, that's what he said. Love your enemies. That's going to be the result of walking humbly with God. Now, there, there's a, oh God, there's so many great passages that we could go to right now. I just want to go to Psalm 146 which kind of reveals the heart of God to us. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. It gives food to the hungry. 
The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. So that's God's concern. These verses show what's on the heart of God. And if you and I are to know the heart of God, these things should be pretty heavy on our hearts as well. So we live in a world where I think you'll agree with me, there's a lot to be concerned about. Boy, if God's heart was filled with pain back in Genesis 6, I'd say his heart still is filled with pain today over what's happening in our world. I Googled several sources this week, and I tried to tone down the numbers and avoid the ones that seem to be incredibly high. So these are, these are kind of toned down numbers. There are over 100 million children under 18 years old living in the streets. That number's rising every day. 40% of them are homeless. That's where they eat, that's where they sleep, that's where they look for help and some kind of way to survive. According to the UNICEF organization, 30,000 children die every day due to poverty, 30,000. There are millions of women who are oppressed through the religious system, through sexual exploitation, or through some economic deprivation. There are over 200 million Christians. Get this now. You know that Christians right now are being hunted down in Afghanistan and probably to be tortured and murdered by the Taliban. But did you know that there are at least 60 countries around the world where Christians are facing persecution right now? And the International Journal of Missionary Research indicates that the number in many countries is not diminishing, it's actually growing. But hey, we... I get overwhelmed with those stats. I don't know about you. I, that just overwhelms me. But I don't even need to look beyond my own town to see overwhelming needs. How about you? I mean, I just look down my street and I see single parents who have desperate needs. I, I have people all around me every day who need a listening ear, who need a, some compassion, who need someone to show some concern or love for them. There are people all around you who just need someone through some humble acts of justice and compassion to make a difference in their lives. And that's what God has called us to. Our mission in this world is pretty clear. It's to preach the gospel of God's grace, of his mercy and love and justice, but at the very same time to live that same gospel with actions that demonstrate the character of God. And as we do that, God's going to get glorified. He really will. And more and better disciples are going to be made. So I close with this. You know, I just love God's word. I, I hope you know that about me. I love God's word. It's so transformative. I just, I live in it every day. I immerse myself in it every single day. And I'll tell you one of those passages that just haunts me. Every time I read it, it's the latter part of Matthew 25, where on Judgment Day, Jesus, it says, is going to separate the sheep from the goats. And, and you know, if you've read that story, 
It's like on these terms. I was hungry and you either gave me something to eat or you didn't. I was thirsty, you gave me something to eat or you didn't. I was a stranger and you took me in or you didn't. I was a prisoner and you visited me or you did not. And Jesus tells this parable. And the righteous, if you've read it, you know, when they're getting rewarded, they're shocked. (laughs) That's the strange thing. The righteous are shocked. They're like, what is he saying? They're like, Lord, when did we see you hungry? I don't remember seeing you that way. When were you thirsty or a stranger in prison? And the point is, they weren't doing it to get credit with God. They were doing it because that's just what Christ's followers do, period. Acts of justice and compassion just characterize our lives because the gap, by God's amazing grace, as we cooperate with his promptings, the gap is getting closed. So, are you teachable? Are you willing to allow God to close the gap between profession and practice? Because here's the deal. God says, to be honest, I'm kind of sick of your songs and rituals. If, if, I'm kind of sick of your worship. If, if. It's become isolated from your life Monday through Saturday. So if you want to be useful and pleasing, look, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. You learn to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Father, I don't know of a more challenging passage than Micah 6. It shakes me. Every time I go there, I pray for me. I pray for my dear brothers and sisters who I love with all my heart that you would close the gap. May we not fight against you. May we cooperate with your transforming grace as you desire to close that gap between profession and practice. And may the world know God's love because they see it in our lives and through our actions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Amen.